My name is Dennis Palmer. I'm an internist. Uh, I work at Mbingo Baptist Hospital in Cameroon. Um, my wife Nancy is back there. We have been in Cameroon, originally started in 1979. So we are officially old-timers. And uh, we have some young people who are coming along to pick up the uh, things out in our part of the world, we hope. Um, so uh, what I want to talk about with you this afternoon is about uh, this difficult area of what to do with uh, patients who present with cancer. Um, I'll talk about uh, the learning objectives have to do just talking about an overview of cancer, uh, the difficulties that patients face, especially in, in, the, in access to treatment. And uh, I want to talk about what we're doing and how we've tried to solve some of those problems and then maybe what, what the future looks like a little bit uh, as we get into that. Um, a little bit of background uh, of how we, how we got to where we are. Uh, I've worked in uh, Cameroon for a long time. We've lived there about 20 years. We've been back and forth a little bit. Um, about eight years ago, uh, we went to Mbingo and started an internal medicine residency program. There's, Mbingo is a training hospital. Uh, we have a PAX surgical residency there. So uh, this, the internal medicine program was uh, there to complement the, uh, the PAX program. And um, it became evident as, the, as our internal medicine started to develop and as we um, got more sophisticated in what we could do in internal medicine, that oncology was sort of a natural thing uh, that came out of that. And so we've, we sort of were forced by necessity to be able to f figure out how to begin to do something for the patient. So that's, that's kind of how we got to where we are. It was not something intentional. I know from some of the other presentations I've been at today that, you know, big discussion about cost-effective treatment and, you know, how much can you really do for patients. Uh, some diseases are just considered uh, untreatable, and cancer certainly falls into that in many areas. So uh, those are some of the uh, things that uh, we hope to get into. And uh, we'll leave some time at the end. If you have questions, we'll have a discussion, uh, we hope. Um, so this is, uh, everyone talks about these uh, dailies uh, these days. And this is, uh, you've seen this, this map before. Um, in, in our part of the world, in Africa, um, most of the, of the deaths are still related to infectious diseases, the majorities. And these chronic diseases uh, are, in Cameroon, are thought to be uh, something less than 30% uh, as far as the disability-related uh, adjusted life years lost. So um, it's, it's less of a problem. Uh, but this is what patients, uh, this is uh, data from 2011. Uh, this is what patients actually, I'm sorry, 2004. This is what they think that patients actually die from in our, in our part of the world. And you can see that it's way down... Uh, Malignant neoplasms is number seven, and it's way down here. And over on in uh, northern Africa and worldwide, uh, cancer is number two on the list. So there are a lot of other things, uh, HIV being uh, number one uh, at the top, and other infectious diseases and infections, uh, the lung, diarrheal diseases, malaria, and even heart disease, uh, more congestive heart failure probably, uh, are ahead of that. 
Um, but that situation uh, is predicted to change. And so this is a, a prediction um, about how uh, cancer is going to evolve in, uh, in developing countries. And you can see that uh, the number of cases uh, is expected to more than double from uh, around 2010 was 12,000 up to 24. Um, um, those are million cases, I think. Yes, a million cases, up to 24 million cases. And the percentage that occur in developing countries is going to increase uh, over time. Um, the problem is that, you know, is how you can actually manage uh, patients in a, in a resource-limited area. Um, this is a – it shows uh, – this is a graph of uh, – that was published about the differential cancer rates in Africa. So if any of you have lived in Africa and know what kind of the, the reporting systems are like – uh, you know, you would probably take this with a big grain of salt because um, last year on the WHO website, Cameroon was listed. They had 3,000 cancers uh, out of a population of 22 million that were reported. And we think that we diagnose around 2,000 or so, getting up toward that number at our hospital at Mbingo. So those numbers are really way off. Uh, but you can you can begin to get a picture that you know there is lung cancer uh, in West Africa, which is the, the this one out on the smallest one. You can see the statistics are just it's there's just not much out there, and a lot of that I think has to do with the health infrastructure and that there just isn't a data collection method uh, that's available uh, for that. Uh, one of the characteristics that we ha that uh, is important in cancer in the area where we're at, is uh, that a lot of the, uh, of the, disease, uh, of the cancers are associated with infectious agents. And so um, even something as common as H. pylori, it's thought that H. pylori causes perhaps 50% of the stomach cancer, uh, accounts for that much risk. And we do see uh, cancer of the stomach quite commonly uh, in our area. Um, HPV that causes um, cervical and uh, uh, upper airway tumors. Uh, hepatitis B and hepatitis C. Uh, uh, those are very common uh, problems in causing hepatocellular carcinoma. Um, and it's interesting, in our area, uh, in Cameroon, 10% of the, of the population is uh, hepatitis B surface antigen positive. Uh, about 3% are thought to be hepatitis C positive. And if you compare that with about 4.3% of the population is HIV infected, but, you know, all of the resources go into HIV treatment. And there really is no treatment programs at all for hepatitis B uh, at this point. And so we're interested in seeing what we can do with that. Um, Epstein-Barr virus, it's associated with lymphomas, especially Burkitt's. Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit. Um, humans, uh, human herpes virus number eight with Kaposi's. Uh, Kaposi's is a very common tumor in our area associated with HIV. And uh, it, in, in developed countries here in the U.S., Kaposi's was quite common back in the 1980s, but the incidence has dropped off dramatically with, with earlier treatment, more effective treatment with ARVs. That is still not the case in our area. We see 
uh, a lot of Kaposi's. Uh, it's a very, it's one of the more common uh, HIV-associated, probably the most common HIV-associated cancer uh, that we have. Um, these other things at the bottom, uh, schistosoma hematobium, we don't have uh, very much of that in our area. I don't know much about that. HTLV, we can't diagnose. Um, and then liver flukes, uh, we've never diagnosed those either. So those are further down the list. But especially those on the, uh, on the top half of that slide are actually quite important and, and account for a significant amount of the disease uh, that we see uh, out in our area. Survival. Um, this is a graph. It shows uh, survival, low income on, the, um, on your left and high income on your right. And you can see a marked difference in outcomes uh, in, in these. Uh, and it lists all the different cancers, but you can see all of the lines are, are down sloping. So if you are in a developing country and you only have access to the health care that's available there, your odds are not very good. Um, uh, you know, many of these things have 80% mortality uh, associated with them out there. So it's just a very, a very difficult um, uh, setting uh, in which to practice uh, in. So, you know, uh, prevention is always better than cure. And uh, there are things that uh, can be done that don't, that don't cost a lot of money. That can uh, can have an impact. Same things on, that we do on on this side of the of the ocean. Uh, if you get people to stop smoking, that that decreases the, probably the most important thing that you can do that re reduces their risk um, of cancer. Uh, HPV infection. Um, they're beginning to talk about uh, HPV vaccination programs, especially in young women uh, for cervical cancer. We have we've done a pilot uh, in Cameroon at, at this point. But uh, widespread availability of, uh, of vaccine is, uh, is still not, it's still not being done. The cost is, is great, and it hasn't, been, it hasn't been implemented. And it's interesting. One of the things, there, there's a lot of suspicion uh, that in, of healthcare initiatives out in our part of the world. And one of them is, is that if you go around vaccinating all these young girls, uh, there's, that makes people suspicious what's going on with that because they don't understand HPV and you know they don't expect their girls to get that anyway so you know uh, what's the motive behind that and those are some of the issues that get that are faced um, Mark Tapazian was talking about hepatitis B infection in our area uh, yesterday um, hepatitis um, you can vaccinate uh, for hepatitis B uh, the problem um, is that we have not seen the decrease in the uh, level of seropositivity for surface antigen that was expected. And uh, it's thought to be, it hasn't been easily uh, implemented to vaccinate uh, at birth, you know, within 24 hours, which is kind of the, the model you're supposed to do, and even giving uh, IgG, I guess, which we don't have. But... Uh, so that's not being done. They were waiting till six weeks, and at six weeks, it doesn't actually produce the results that uh, you're expected. So we're not even with those, those. Hepatitis B is in the national vaccination programs in Cameroon, but it has not resulted in a decrease in the seropositive uh, rates. 
uh, with hepatitis C, uh, there's there's hope. Uh, uh, Gilead has licensed their drugs now in India. I think there's 11 different manufacturers that are going to get into that business. So we're expecting that we will be able to treat hepatitis C um, soon, one of these days. Uh, we hope so. Uh, but with hepatitis B, it's going to be a lot more difficult because there isn't any, there aren't any drugs that you can do that with. Uh, with server, with uh, the cancers that you can cure if you detect them early, uh, cervical cancer is one of those, and uh, uh, I'm sure you're aware of this movement to do uh, instead of doing Pap smears, they do vis- acetic acid application and visual inspection of the cervix, and then bi- uh, biopsy. And so we have a program in Cameroon uh, in our system that that does that, and I'll talk a little bit about that in a, in a minute here. Um, breast cancer screening is not done. Uh, mammography is available, but it's very limited, very expensive, and not done as a screening tool. And even uh, breast self-examination is, um, is not taught widely. Uh, one of the big advantages that the women have at this stage, at least, is that they, they're pregnant a lot of their life. And that has some protective effect on, uh, on breast cancer. But um, it's a big issue uh, for us. And surprisingly, colorectal cancer. Uh, you know, having been in Cameroon for a long time, my first term there was in the early 1980s, and I, we can remember, I remember one uh, colon cancer that we saw. A guy presented with an obstructive lesion, and uh, that was, yes, sir. Uh, well, I'm sure it's genetics has a lot to do with this. And so this is the issue with these uh, colon cancers because what's happening is that we're seeing uh, a dramatic increase in the amount of colon cancer that we see. And it's not in, you know, here we don't screen until you're 50 years old. There we're seeing these in all age spectrums uh, in the 20s and 30s. You see people with these large uh, lesions. And... Um, you know, when I was in medical school, we were taught that half of the can- colon cancers you could reach with your finger. They were way down low, and they've been moving to the right uh, ever since. Uh, in our area, that's, you can reach a lot of the cancers with your finger. And, and especially up with a flex- flexible sigmoidoscope, you can find probably the vast majority. There are some that are further over. But... Um, you know, no one has an explanation for why we're seeing colon cancer. Where, where is it coming from? It wasn't there earlier. Is it diet-related or, or exactly why is that uh, happening? But, you know, young people, because there's not much screening and, and people have diarrhea and they have bloody diarrhea, uh, those are common problems that people get into, and no, they don't have endoscopic facilities in most places. Um, then, the quite, you know, so that they, they show up, late with metastatic disease, and it's just really not a, a good situation uh, for them. So um, we're, those you have to be able to do screening, and we're not, that's not uh, available to most patients. Some of the other things that you do, you can treat with systemic uh, uh, chemotherapy. Uh, I'll talk about it. We have a Burkitt's lymphoma program. I'll talk about that a little bit in a minute. Uh, we see a lot of... Uh, Non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, uh, very common in, in uh, our HIV population. 
um, as well. It's after after Kaposi's, it's probably the most common thing that we see in that in that in those patients. Uh, we see some Hodgkins, but it's less common. Uh, the other things on there, well, we see uh, sarcomas and osteosarcoma are, are relatively more common than you would have, I would have expected, at least when we look at our statistics, uh, which I'll show you in a minute here. Um, and we do do palliative chemotherapy for Kaposi's. Uh, that's one of the uh, – and all of those things we have some treatment for uh, at the stage that we've gotten to there. So some of the issues uh, in, in cancer treatment, uh, one is uh, patients come for all diseases, but cancer, it's especially devastating that they show up late and um, many times with widespread metastatic disease. Uh, some of the reasons are, and uh, we think that about 80% of our patients have gone to traditional healers before they come to us. And so it's a very, very common thing um, there are some traditional healers that think they can treat cancer. In fact, we have a guy that's not too far from our hospital that takes referrals. Somehow he gets referrals out of our system, and we lose patients to him, and uh, so I'm told anyway. Um, and the other thing is is that either the patient or the health personnel that they consult don't recognize the seriousness of the disease, and so they, they delay uh, at that level. Um, Treatment is not available to many patients, so we're very fortunate. We have a we have an aggressive, uh, very large uh, surgery program at Imbingo through the PACS, this PAX system that, that's been evo- uh, developing, and we can do high-level uh, cancer surgery. That's that's the primary modality for a lot of the things that we that we treat. Uh, I think that we are the only mission hospital that I know of that has a full-time pathologist. So we have pathology services, and uh, Dr. Barden uh, has been with us for about four years, and when he came, the lights came on. All of a sudden, we now know we have a diagnosis, whereas we never had before. And uh, having practiced in, uh, you know, in the days when that was not the case, um, when he's not there, it's, I mean, we're in trouble. It's difficult because we, uh, about half of our diagnoses uh, are made with FNA, uh, because we don't, all we need is a diagnosis. Is it malignant? Is it, you know, uh, we don't have that many protocols. All of this uh, cell pathology and all of that stuff uh, wouldn't help us very much based on the treatments that we have available at this point. So we do FNAs. Uh, my residents now have learned that if you, if you can find, just find a lymph node, uh, and then Dr. Barden will tell you what's wrong with the patient. So that's, they do diligent uh, exams for adenopathy. And they're pretty good at, I mean, our, the residents learn to do FNA as a routine thing. They're, we do them a lot. It's about, about half of our diagnoses come that way. And, we, and other things come out of that, tuberculosis. And so it's a very, very useful thing uh, for us to have. Um, there are very few uh, well-trained medical oncologists uh, available anywhere in Africa. Um, we don't have one as yet, but one of my first residents is now in Cape Town uh, doing a two-year fellowship. So when she comes back, this oncology program that's evolved, uh, she's going to inherit that, and, and uh, we think that that will put us in, in a pretty good position. Uh, so we just have to be patient. In the meantime, it's, uh, we're still kind of struggling with that. Uh, 
drugs are another another whole area. Um, the uh, drug supply is not very good. Um, we have currently eight drugs that we uh, that we work with. Uh, we have algorithms that we've developed uh, with, in consultation with oncologists, so that we are able to. It's pretty much a cookbook uh, system. We have we have nurse practitioners who who do all of the paperwork for us, and then they're overseen by one of the physicians. Now one of the senior residents, but eventually be a our oncologist and. Um, so just keeping a supply of drugs uh, is is a is a critical thing. A lot, mostly, we have to import them, and there are times when that's a difficult when we run out when we we have supply issues. Uh, the second thing is the cost of these drugs. Uh, you know, if you're trying to do cost-effective medicine, uh, cancer chemotherapy is not in that category for most patients. Um, it costs uh, the average uh, cost per round of chemotherapy in our setting is around $120, $130 per course. And if you know how poor many patients are in that, that's a huge amount of money. So we have a lot of issues about uh, continuing to, uh, to treat patients. Yes. I know you're talking mostly about cure and I'll get to that, and uh, we've got a, we've got, we, we actually are able to do that kind of thing out there. Uh, radiation therapy is uh, pretty much non-existent in, uh, in many places. So we have, uh, we I think there are three radiation therapy units in Cameroon for a population of 22 million, and uh, those are in the big cities. So we're six hours outside the city. And uh, this is a very difficult thing for our patients because some of these protocols that you run, uh, you know, they want to combine the chemo and the radiation simultaneously. So the patients have to go down to the, down to Douala. They have to stay there. They have to, uh, and it really doesn't work. And so one of our priorities in the next two to three years, we're trying to figure out how we can can get a radiation unit, uh, probably a cobalt unit. If any of you knows any. Anything about that? I'd be very happy to talk to you because uh, that's a, it's a quite a strange area to me. I was meeting with some people and they said, "Well, you ought to talk to the veterinarians because they still use cobalt, and all of the everybody else in in the U.S. at least uh, uses uh, linear accelerators." I think so. Um, we'll have to figure out how to do that, uh, but it's a critical thing. Uh, in that's the one modality that we don't have access to that that we really need to, uh, to figure out. This is a slide that uh, it shows you kind of the lack of uh, radio uh, therapy centers across Africa. Uh, the ones in red have none. Uh, I assume that Central African Republic has none, although they didn't give any data. I doubt that they have one. Uh, as I said, we've got three. So somewhere around uh, each unit serves between 5 and 10 million people, according to that graph. Um, Nigeria is even worse. It's got a huge population. And, and this is just kind of the state of, of uh, treatment uh, all across Africa. Um, one of the encouraging things um, that we keep hearing about hasn't happened yet is that just as HIV 
uh, not much good happened with HIV there, until there, there was this huge influx of resources. Uh, we're hoping that something similar to that happens. There is an awareness that as that the uh, amount of cancer is going to increase, and uh, uh, without increasing resources, uh, it's not going to the care just isn't going to be there. So there there are groups that are interested, but they don't have the the funds. Uh, at this point to, to help uh, to make these things happen. Uh, this is a, a slide about delay in treatment. Uh, we do, this is one, uh, someone did this up at our hospital at Bonso. It was a survey just looking at what happens with Burkitt's lymphoma. And as you know, Burkitt's is a very, it's the most rapidly growing tumor that uh, we deal with. And a month's delay results in uh, tumor growing quite a lot during that time. So um, this is kind of a typical scenario about how, how a, a parents would deal with a child that had, uh, that had a Burkitt. So uh, first, uh, they, they see something uh, that's an abnormal. They recognize the abnormal. And they, the first thing is they wait and hope it goes away, you know, kind of the optimistic uh, treatment. Um, they, day four to eight, they try either a traditional or some other local treatment. Maybe they go to the health center. Um, they have to decide whether, in the, you know, an African worldview, you have to decide whether this is a natural illness or a, uh, it has a spiritual component to it. And so you go to the Ngambi man in our area, as he's called, and, and he has to tell you you know, what, whether this is uh, kind of what the etiology is. So they're, they kind of divide their, their medicine into those two areas. Um, many of them end up in, the, in a traditional healer's compound, and they are undergoing traditional uh, either the cuttings or herbal medicine or something of that sort. Um, you know, it isn't working. It's getting worse. Uh, so then they have to go back home. They have to look for money because uh, they won't have cash, so they have to go around and borrow the money or uh, sell something or come up with the cash somehow, uh, travel to the hospital. Uh, so it takes them, they, we figure, you know, a good four weeks before they show up in the outpatient department and then uh, get admitted for, for treatment. And that's a pretty common scenario probably for many of the cancers that, they, that you see. And so many times, even with things like a pedicellar carcinoma, the patient will have realized there was a mass, but it wasn't causing any pain. And, you know, they'll, they'll just kind of watch it and hope for the best. And then it eventually, you know, they move up the line. And, and in something like that, it doesn't make a lot of difference. We can't treat hepatoma. We, uh, we would like to be able to do things like alcohol injection, some of those techniques. But the tumors have to be quite small. And we have not gotten into that because we never get, we never have tumors that are small enough to treat that way. So it, it has to do with these patients showing up very late. Uh, this is this is us at Mbingo. I like to show this is my favorite slide. This is actually there's been some changes in the hospital uh, which aren't that important, but it's a beautiful setting. I always show this to recruit people to come and visit us. Uh, would be, it, I think you can agree it would be a national park if, it, if this were uh, uh, out here in Kentucky or somewhere. It is, and we have the hospital has a lot of land that goes way back up in the hills. Uh, uh, 40, the hospital is 4,700 feet. So it's cooler. 
uh, cool and rainy mountain weather. Yeah, it's a, it's a very nice climate. Uh, we don't worry about malaria very much where we're at because we're high enough and it's cool and we don't have that. Um, so I'll tell you a little bit more about the hospital. It was originally, it's where it is because it was originally a leprosy settlement. It was founded in 1952. Uh, and we've always done all of the leprosy care for uh, our province, uh, which is uh, the northwest province of Cameroon. It was, and so in 1952, the first number of years that they did leprosy care, they, moved, all, they brought all the leprosy patients into one place and treated them there. Uh, later on, they decided that wasn't a good idea, so then they built clinics in all of the various villages and kept the patients at home, thinking that that was better, and probably was in the end. So um, we developed a uh, – what we did at Mbingo with leprosy then was treat the disabilities. Uh, so we have a big rehab program that developed out of that. Um, the general hospital started in 1962. Um, you see there's this road that goes by there, that was paved in the mid-1990s, around 1995. And if you've ever been to Africa, you know what the importance of a road is. So we had, as soon as they paved the road, then the hospital just took off. And uh, so we were, uh, when they were doing that, around 1990, the hospital had grown to 90 beds. And we're now three, at 300 plus, uh, expecting that we will grow to about 400 450 up in that range in the next five years or so is what we're kind of estimating if we continue to grow at the present rate. Um, this is the entrance to the hospital. Um, we were receiving the French ambassador. This was a few weeks ago. So we were all lined up in the front waiting for them to arrive. And uh, I'll just show you a few pictures. Uh, is, if you've been in mission hospitals, ours doesn't look a lot different. Um, this is, we have open wards. Uh, the beds on the ward were there when I arrived in 1979, so not much as that part hasn't changed. We did remodel a little bit, painted it, put new ceiling up and some things like that. But it looks very much like it always has. My wife took that picture, and we did not plant the Bible there. It was actually there uh, ahead of time. This is, our, this is the surgery crew. Uh, that's Dr. Brown in the middle. Uh, Dr. Axe is uh, one of the post-residency uh, surgeons. And uh, the rest are, are residents uh, on, their, on their team in the, in the PACS program. Uh, this is Dr. Dr. Barden. Uh, Dr. Barden is always very easy to find. He is always sitting right there uh, at his microscope. Uh, he never leaves. He is very, very dedicated. He works very, very hard to stay current and not get behind. Uh, when he starts, they start stacking up, he starts working into the night to do that. And so it is hugely, I mean, you can't imagine how important pathology actually is. And um, one of, that's one of the things that uh, I think that ought to be discussed in these kind of meetings is how do you, extend pathology services to places that don't have them. Because if you want to do quality medicine, you know, that's one of the most critical things that has to be there. You just can't, there's no other way to do it. And um, Dr. Barton is only one guy. So if you know any pathologists that are looking for a life-changing experience, uh, we can provide that for them. 
and it's a good service. Uh, we, um, it's very, very busy. One of the things that they talk about, uh, the pathologists who come visit us, they say that the typical pathology service is you see, you know, normal, 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 you know, and then finally you find something that's a little bit abnormal. Well, here it's abnormal, 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 really abnormal, you know, and then you get one normal out of the out of the, out of ten. So it's it is an astounding amount of pathology. We don't even we don't do routine pathology on just surgical specimens. Just you know, as you do here, you're required to do that. We don't do that because it's too much work and too expensive. But uh, that's uh, so. I in cancer treatment, you can't without a diagnosis. You can't you can't you just you can't start. Um, this is uh, one of my my. Colleagues doing an FNA on a liver. Uh, it was Dr. Barrier, who was one of the post-residency guys that was with us. Uh, he's come home now. But uh, um, all, the, all of our residents are very proficient at uh, FNAs before they graduate because the senior residents, that's their job. Otherwise, Dr. Barden would have to go do it, and we try to relieve him of everything that we can. So actually, I never got into it because the residents all do it. So I'm incompetent in that area. Um, I want to show you a few uh, slides. This, so one of the things that I was interested in is people, you know, we say we're doing cancer treatment. Well, we really don't. There are no figures from Africa that are reliable about what, you know, kind of what the spectrum of disease is or any of that sort of. It just doesn't exist. So um, about two years ago, I convinced the hospital to uh, let us set up a cancer registry. And uh, we we built it uh, a little database, and uh, we got it a clerk who's not very good, but he's the best we got. And uh, and so we've been collecting them. So we have about uh, a little between 16, 1700 cases now that are entered into the database. To go in, you have to have a path report. So uh, the data is skewed a little bit. I'll explain that uh, because we don't get path reports on everything that comes through. And uh, so we don't have it's it's not completely reflective of what we do, um, but this is kind of the breakout. I thought it was surprising. It's uh, significantly skewed toward female uh, patients, and I think that probably uh, well one of the reasons is is that in males we don't do prostate biopsies in a lot of patients, so we use our finger uh, and our clinical exam, and and, and that's considered to be we have PSAs, so that's considered sufficient evidence for prostate cancer. And we're not doing chemotherapy for that. We do archaeectomy, and uh, so that that's kind of how, uh, how that works out. Um, the age distribution is not too unusual. Uh, we have uh, one of the reasons there are not more children is that we have a separate, uh, in this registry, we have a separate one that's run as part of a uh, childhood cancer program that we have at the hospital. And so they're in a different registry, and I think we don't have the PATH reports uh, from that. Uh, and the distribution, we get patients. Uh, Cameroon has 10 provinces, and um, you can see that we have patients that have arrived from all of them. Even the far north, which is way up where Boko Haram is, it's at least four days' drive from us. Uh, we've had a few cases all the way from up there. Most of them are in the northwest province, which is where we're located. But um, the western province is a Francophone province, which is two hours away from us. 
Uh, and then further than that, uh, littoral is Douala. That's the main, the, the main uh, industrial port. Uh, center is the capital, southwest. So you can see these patients are traveling quite a distance. And many of them uh, have been in facilities that did, did not, that did not have the ability to make the diagnosis for them. And, and they've been treated for other kinds of things. And... Uh, you know, it just doesn't, uh, it doesn't work. So they end up coming to us usually after they've spent all of their money somewhere else. And so, you know, then we're trying to struggle with how to take care of them, you know, in, in that sort of a financial setting. Um, as I mentioned, we, we start, part of the data collection that we do is we ask them where did they first go. And this is what they told us, that uh, the majority, vast majority of these patients went to traditional healers as their first stop in uh, in trying to uh, uh, get care, health centers, uh, and then district hospitals, referral hospitals, be like the regional hospitals uh, down. Whoops. Uh, and this is the breakout of, uh, of those 1,600 cancers that we've got. Um, a little over 400 of them were female uh, were breast cancer, uh, cervix was 262, partly because we have a, I think we have a, cerv a cervical cancer screening program, so we pick up more of that. Kaposi's is uh, probably higher than this. Uh, uh, classic Kaposi's, we don't biopsy, has such a characteristic uh, appearance, and we will give them chemo based on their, on the clinical setting and the presentation. Uh, as I said, there's a lot of... Uh, I assume those are sarcomas, osteosarcomas, and things. There's more of that than I would have expected uh, to show up there. Uh, lymphoma is, um, we accuse Dr. Barden of, he can find it everywhere. And uh, our mo we had an interesting patient uh, just before I came back that an HIV-positive patient that came in with a big uh, pericardial effusion. So the surgeons drained it. It was lymphocytic. He was HIV-positive. He said, this is TB, you know, started him on TB treatment. And two days later, the pathologist sent us a report that said it was a lymphoma, a non-Hodgkin's non lymphoma. So uh, you see these things everywhere, uh, and uh, it's pretty astounding. And even I would have thought that those numbers are, are low. Uh, part of it is that we don't see the breast cancer patients. Those all go straight to surgery, and we don't get them. Uh, and so I think that that kind of gives us a different perspective. Prostate is, uh, is, is a lot more common than that, but we don't have biopsies in a lot of them is why that's uh, that way. Hepatomas, it still seems small. I'm not sure why it's that number. And we had 18 colon cancers uh, in this list. And then the rest of those is a lot more. This, is a, this next slide is just a graph that came off of the database that shows you the 25% is breast, and this is, uh, 16 is cervix, and 10 is Kaposi's, and, uh, and so on. Out of interest, head and neck cancer? We have, uh, it's, I can't tell you, I, don't, I mean, it's in the, it's one of those, yeah, it's, it's one of those, it's less than 5%. Um, you know, you know Wayne Koch, perhaps? Um, Wayne is uh, part of the PAX program. He's at Johns Hopkins and, and does one of their, he's the head of the head and neck there. Uh, he's, uh, we're building a head and neck uh, fellowship 
as part of the PACS program at Amingo. So we expect that the amount of this head and neck cancer will continue to increase. Part of the push for radiation is around that program because uh, you really have to have uh, radiation to treat that effectively. So um, that's going to be a big problem. Not, it's a small percentage, maybe. I, so. I mean, there, well, there's, okay, uh, you know, there are, uh, there are people that's, that's, as they say, they smoke three sticks a day or two sticks a day, and they call them, and they think they're heavy smokers. Um, and I thought that that was pretty much the, uh, and that is the majority of people. However, we are seeing patients uh, that present with lung cancer, and when you go back in the history, they've been, one and two pack a day smokers. They've, if they've had a job that, you know, in the government service, uh, where they had ac- access to the funds that allowed them to buy that many cigarettes, there are those people out there, and we do see uh, very typical lung cancer and uh, patients that that show up, and and then we see COPD along with that. Uh, one interesting question: uh, the most common cause of COPD in our patient population is in women who sit around wood you know, the biomass, biomass uh, smoke from wood fires when they cook. And that's far and away the most common cause of COPD where we are. I don't know if, I don't know if that's also associated what the incidence of can- lung cancer is in that population. It'd be interesting to, to find that out. But it's, um, it, as the women live longer, we're seeing a lot more of that. In the old, in the old days, that wasn't something that, uh, that we were aware of. So I think it has to do with how long the patients are living uh, so that they actually live long enough to present with this. Uh, This is a slide uh, from 2008 uh, data about uh, estimates of uh, common sites of cancer by sex. So you can see that uh, the uh, breast is the pink and cervix is the red. Those are the most common reported cancers. So we're... Our data looks a lot like that. Uh, in males, uh, prostate is supposed to be the most common cancer in males in Cameroon, but uh, I think it has to do with we're not we're not entering them, and that's something we have to. If we're going to do a registry, we've got to figure out how to you know, how to include that. But we've tried to be fairly strict and you know and have real diagnoses before we enter them. So we'll have to talk about that a little bit. Uh, this is Dr. Brown. Um, you know, and, and their surgical team. Uh, this, is, this is how we get our diagnosis and our preliminary treatment for most of the patients uh, that, we're, that we're treating. Uh, this is the drugs that we, um, the most common drugs that we're using. We, I think we actually have eight uh, on the list now uh, that we have. But doxorubicin-based uh, protocols, we use that quite commonly. Uh, especially for breast and uh, Kaposi's. Uh, the cost is, is difficult. It costs us about, uh, one vial of doxorubicin costs us about uh, $30 uh, for one vial. And so trying to figure out how to, buy, how to get access to this in a cost-effective manner, that's the, that's the big challenge. And by the time you do, you include the drugs, you include the imaging studies to monitor the patient at the lab, um, it really gets to be uh, expensive. Uh, this is a, one of the things that uh, 
came out of our developing a program was an oncology. These are our oncology nurses that administer all of this. Uh, this is uh, one of our nurses, Judith and Dee, on the, on the right. Um, when we first started, um, we were not, we didn't have a very good program, and we were uh, running, having the ward nurses try to run chemotherapy. That was kind of where we started. We had a patient that, that, had a, that they infiltrated doxorubicin in the back of her hand. For, she was being treated for Kaposi's. The whole back of the hand sloughed off. And uh, so at that point, we decided that if we're going to do this, we have to have a team. And so these guys are like all oncology nurses. I don't know if we have any in here, but all they're superb. And uh, there's a whole special class of people. And because they... They do a great job. We've not had any of those kind of problems. They find IVs and the uh, lines in these patients. They, I mean, it just happens, you know, and uh, it's uh, it's amazing. Uh, we haven't. This is a our, we have an outpatient ward that has uh, ten beds in it now that we use for our uh, to administer the chemotherapy in. So we ha- we've gotten better uh, with time uh, as we've gone along, and they they do. Uh, uh, they also do our palliative care, and so they do chemo two days a week on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and they do palliative care on, I think it's Wednesday and Friday or something, where they, we make home visits and that whole program. They wear gowns uh, and masks, and there is a, there is a, a, I won't call it a laminar flow hood. <laughs> But it does have a, a fan on the back that sucks the air out. Um, and, uh, yeah, that was – I think they use it. I haven't gone to check on them, but you do have such a, such a thing. How effective it is, that's another question. But uh, that got to be uh, – I mean, uh, when we were setting the thing up, though, they were very concerned about this. They thought they needed hazard pay and – Stuff like that, you know. Well, I'm, so I'm not, I'm not familiar enough with the mixing of it. It didn't seem to me that it should be that big of a problem. I mean, if you're just squirting, uh, you know, if you're re- if, if you're inside of a sealed bottle. But anyway, that, uh, this is I know this is how it's supposed to be done. So that's what we ended up doing. Uh, one of the programs that we have that that uh, we're proud of is uh, we have a pediatric cancer program. That's been sponsored through Stellenbosch University in Cape Town, and there's a guy Peter Hessling who is a, he's a emeritus professor there, uh, who's chair of the Department of Pediatrics, but he's a pediatric oncologist. And his work, especially in the later year part of his career, has been developing uh, chemo pro, uh, protocols that can be run by non-oncologists in low-resource areas because that's Africa. And so this is the one that he started with. He's been working with us since uh, about 2001. Uh, we are um, so we've now treated close to a thousand patients with Burkitt's, thousand children. Um, they get uh, the program provides free drugs up through uh, anyone up through age 16. Most of the Burkitt's kids are much younger than that. Um, a number of significant uh, uh, things that he was able to do. Uh, they they started doing oral therapy. Uh, so the cyclophosphamide is given orally. They give intrathecal methotrexate to decrease the rate of CNS relapse. Um, 
they, uh, the protocol was intensified and shortened. It used to be, in the good old days, we used to give a shot of doxorubicin every month for six, six months, and, and we would cure 20%. Um, so now the whole course is, is given in five weeks. Uh, there is a, they use ultrasound to monitor the tumor regression, and if you don't, I think it's 50% regression at two weeks or so. If it doesn't, if you're not getting that, they even intensify it more. To, uh, so he's got, he's got these uh, protocols that he's developed around that. So by using oral drug, the cost of the treatment came down significantly, and uh, they're able to get the drugs. And as I say, the, the cure rates, probably the cure rates are more like 20%, not 35%, and before we were doing this. And they're in the mid-60s the mid now. Well, there's still a big gap. I think Burkett's probably 95% of kids that get cured with that here in, in this country. But that's a, a major improvement. So this program, so that's the Burkett's program. Um, the pediatric cancer program, he's, with the success that they had, he's expanded it into um, Welms tumor, uh, retinoblastoma, and Kaposi's. Uh, he has protocols for all of those, and they're also providing uh, treatment for that. The Welms tumor is, is going very nicely at this point. Uh, they give preoperative chemo and then, uh, and then surgery after that. So that's, been, that's kind of the prototype. Uh, we were doing this before we actually did our adult. We're doing much with adult chemo, and and uh, we would like to replicate some of the success that they've had in that program with the rest of the things that we're doing. Uh, we do a we have a women's uh, cancer screening clinic. Uh, it's called the Women's Health Project. We have uh, a, a midwife who's assigned to do to do the screening in 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 uh, five. Our five major uh, facility, health facilities that we operate, and they've screened somewhere around 20,000 patients uh, for cervical cancer at this point. And then they do treatment uh, based on uh, if it's just a superficial lesion, they treat it on site. They can do cone biopsies and then refer it on for more aggressive treatment if necessary. Um, They've done published some data around this where they, they take the image. It was put in a database, and they were comparing, uh, having different blinded people read that out and compare. And, and our, the nurses uh, actually do, do pretty well. Uh, they do a satisfactory job of, of reading those. Uh, the palliative care program was uh, started in 2006. Um, there's a group from Uganda that came and helped us to do that. Uh, from my perspective, the major thing that, uh, the major accomplishment was that we got liquid morphine. So we, import, uh, we have a central pharmacy that manufactures different IVs and uh, other things of that sort, and they, ma they make up the, uh, the morphine syrup for us. And so we have a good supply of that, and that has transformed. Uh, I mean, without adequate analgesia, you can't talk about being doing palliative care, I think. So that's been one of the major things. And since so many of our patients are presenting late, then, you know, this is the – a lot of the patients just get referred to, for palli uh, palliative care consults almost immediately on arrival at the hospital. Do you have a physician overseeing that? Uh, superficially. 
he's at a different site. There's one physician in five. I mean, this is in spread through our whole system. And um, so in our in our program, we don't. There's somebody there's somebody in charge of it. But if they have a problem, they can, they come talk to me, and I make the phone calls and complain that we why are we out of morphine? I always threaten to cut off some sensitive part of their body so they know what pain is, you know, and what they're putting our patients through by not providing this essential medication, you know. But anyway. Uh, health board, uh, yeah, health board. It's it. So that we've got uh, the Baptist Health System in Cameroon has uh, six hospitals, four that are well established, and then about five urban, cl- big urban clinics. Where it's a very large system. We have thirty, around thirty sites, um, plus a big primary health care program. I mean, the original primary health care idea. So we're. We see about a million outpatients in our system in a year. Give you some idea of what the scope of it is. Bingo sees about 100,000 patient outpatients and about 10,000 admissions uh, there. And this is us. This is this is my medicine team. We do medicine, pediatrics, and uh, it's grown over the years. <laughs> Actually, I have 10 residents. Uh, six house officers, two nurse practitioners, well, there's two nurse, nurse practitioner students, but uh, that's what that's what we who we are. Uh, that's Dr. Nordell. She's a pediatrician, and uh, Dr. Camden is back over third from. He's uh, one of my graduates that does all of our endoscopy now. And we will have a an oncologist in there one of these days before very long. Two years passes very quickly. We 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 hope. So, any other que- any questions? Yes. Uh, we have uh, we have a big because of the lep- of the history with leprosy care. We have a big rehab program there. Um, with physical, and we, we have physical therapy through most of our big sites. Uh, not so terribly sophisticated. Uh, we have a, we have, right now we have a speech therapist uh, who's there for two years working with us. Uh, but generally it's just, it's just physical therapy. We can do prosthetics. Uh, we, so we can, uh, they do uh, with lower extremity prosthetics and uh, that sort of thing. Snapchat, how remarkable this is, and I, I'm just sitting here thinking of how much frustration and patience it's taken to get to this point. It really is remarkable. Well, I this is like a dream come true because I've been there for 35 plus years, and it's only in the last five years that we've been able to do the stuff that we're doing. And uh, just to show a snapshot in Rwanda. I'm a cardiac surgeon doing general surgery in a remote hospital, 300 beds. And we get all these toilet mastectomies, very end-stage breast cancer patients. And Rwanda set up with a lot of regional health clinics, a lot, and they can feed into these hospitals. So I thought the Minister of Health is a woman. She's a pretty neat person. I thought, well, train the, the nurses or people functioning like nurses in the health centers to teach self-breast exams. Forget 
and at least we'll pick up old tumors, and we can biopsy these, and we'll save a, a mathematical number of young women's lives. And not only did they not able, they weren't able to put in the public health teaching to the self-breast exams, but there's no pathologist, except for the very, very wealthy, there's no pathologist. And then there's no real treatment, and we don't have the amount of surgical coverage that can do in aspect. So to get this far in a country, very similar country, is really an amazing blessing. Well, I don't know. We we feel like God has his hand on what's going on there because certainly more than we could have ever, uh, any of us could have ever pulled off. But I was talking to Bill Walker back here about that in the need for pathology in mission hospitals. Once you have it and you see how much difference it makes, uh, I mean, you wonder, it becomes like it, we have to do this. It isn't something, it isn't optional because uh, it just transforms everything that you do. And if we, you know, as Christians, we want to deliver, if we're going to name Christ as our, the one we're serving, we want to do the very best possible care. And uh, without some of these kind of things coming along, uh, it just isn't going to be there. Well, um, you know, you, there's a debate. I mean, you, you know, and it depends on where you're at and kind of the level of development of the hospital. But um, in our system, this makes sense. You know, there are patients that can afford treatment and it's not available. And they... Um, they're very wealthy in Cameroon will leave the country to go to France or somewhere or even here to the U.S. to get treatment. But uh, there's a lot of people that have enough, that can afford this. Well, we're, well we're, they can afford $1,000 for a course of this whole course all the way through. The surgery costs, you know, four or $500 for, you know, for a major uh, surgical procedure. And the chemo is another, you know, 1000 And that's... Uh, they have they have resources. They're, I mean, the main, the number of people in Cameroon that have a relative, a son or a daughter here in the U.S. working who will send them the money. Uh, that's the astounding thing where we're at. Uh, so money is, and having watched where we were 30 years ago and watched all of this thing develop, it's it's pretty astounding uh, what we can do. And so I think it makes sense where we are. This isn't the only thing we should be doing, but it's. Uh, there, it's certainly uh, it's appropriate for a lot of the patients that that are coming in, 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 to us at Imbingo. That's I mean we need to be able to do this. We were if we didn't, I don't know where they would go. It just the services just are not available. There are six schools in Cameroon. And uh, we are particularly fond of them from the University of Buya, which is an Anglophone university down at the coast. We've, that's where the, we've had very good success with them. In fact, I'm, I'm excited about the quality of our residents now, and as is Jim Brown in the surgery program. We've kind of gotten through this initial phase, and the residents are strong. I mean, they're comparable to... I taught here in the U.S. for a number of years, and they're easily comparable to the residents I taught over here. We, uh, yeah, we, this is our, you know, this is the mission model. We charge everybody pays something 
And uh, we have been self-sustaining for 60 years. And we're actually doing it financially. We're doing quite well. Uh, Who runs the hospital? It's run, or or uh, it's run in, by the nationals. Uh, the missionaries, it was started by missionaries. For our first hospital started in 1949. And Bingo started in 1952, uh, as I said, as a leprosy settlement. Um, in 1986, we got our first Cameroonian me- uh, medical director, who's been run- and he's actually been running. He's very, one of the best administrators that I've worked with. Um, and he's done exceedingly well. Uh, the programs have all expanded, and uh, uh, he's had missionaries working along, you know, kind of in a support role along with that. And and uh, but it's done, it's done very well, and we're very proud of the of what we're able to do out there. And so this is a, the outgrowth of of that. And it's I think it's a kind of a unique setting from what I, I know about other places. And it has grown. It's, you know, I mean, it's a, it's, we're the second largest health provider in Cameroon, I think, uh, after the government. So. What other residencies are there besides surgery and medicine? That's all that we have at this point. We are anxious to, we would like to get into OB, um, except we can't find anybody who wants to come and do that with us. So if, if you know anybody. Well, the head and neck. So actually, what's yeah, we would do. We would like uh, we do pediatrics. Uh, our residents, co- we cover pediatrics. We have pediatricians working with us, including him, uh, and uh, we will be shortly in the first of December. Um, so we cover. We kind of do in med- We do a kind of a med peds thing. Uh, is how we handle that. But obstetrics is our big issue. So where we're moving is more. In, I mean, we're starting to get into fellowships and in, through the PACS program. So head and neck. Uh, people are starting to talk about plastics and pediatric surgery and some of those kind of things uh, developing. But it's. We would like to be able to expand to a full complement of residence residencies. We have a lot of we have 2,800 acres of land to fill up, so space is not a problem. We have 100,000 patients, and uh, so I mean, it's it's a place where we could do that, and uh, we'll see what God does. We got to have we got to have people to start these programs. Though we got to have people who want to come and help us. We need well. The model that I th- the model I'm going to follow is I expect that my chop chair, as we call them, and pigeon is uh, going to be a Cameroonian. It's going to be one of my residents. Uh, so that's what I what I expect to do is to train them up and then uh, you know let them assume the responsibility for the residency and let us do some of the other stuff that is more difficult for them, the fundraising and you know the volunteer programs and stuff like that. But uh, they're very competent to do the training. Uh, and I think that that lo- provides the long-term stability. So eventually we could do that in other programs. But to start them, we need, uh, we need young people. to. We need 10 years. This is not short-term stuff. Uh, you can't do it in less than 10, and probably 15 is more reasonable. But, uh, uh, yeah. Anyway. Mm-hmm. And I'm currently planning a project where I would do a 
I'd be very interested in hearing about it. I don't know about that program. But um, as I said, Wayne Koch is, is from Johns Hopkins, and, and he's, he's going to be transitioning to run this fellowship uh, at Mbingo with us. So, and was, he's, very, he's very interested in, I mean, it's necessary for his program to have access to that. I think our time is over a little bit, so thank you very much.